Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, I'm Nicole Giantonio, the Chief Marketing Officer at Elevate. The Impact podcast you're about to hear features Mike Russell, the Head of Global Legal Operations for Expedia Group, and Steve Harmon, Elevate's COO and General Counsel. Mike and Steve discuss two change initiatives and the impacts of those changes. The first outlines the deconstruction and rebuilding of litigation processes for a large manufacturing organization. The second involves the process review and automation of buy-side contracts at Expedia. So I'd like to begin by welcoming Mike Russell of Expedia and Elevate's Steve Harmon to the Elevate Together podcast. To kick off, I'd like each of you to describe how you entered the legal operations industry and specifically what led you to where you are today. Sure. Well, uh, this is Mike. Uh, I got started really coming out of the dark ages of the 1990s, as some may remember, uh, working with uh, products like WordPerfect on Novell Networks as a law firm IT director. I was always a Technologists who thought I wanted to go to law school and discovered that my niche was actually supporting attorneys and helping them get things done with their computers. And shortly after Y2K had the great opportunity to go work with the folks at Liberty Mutual up in Boston. I spent about 15 years developing what we now know as legal ops. Of course, back then we had no word for it, but the work was getting done nonetheless. And we went from e-billing to lots of other advanced technologies. And then over the intervening years, I've been at two other organizations uh, to jumpstart and establish legal operations as we know it today. Yes, this is Steve. It's interesting that Mike introduced Novell because my first job as a lawyer was directly as a member of Novell's legal department. I have a non-traditional approach to the law in the sense that I studied electrical engineering and, and technology originally, went to Novell as an intern, as a 2L summer intern, and, and had a great experience getting exposure to the intersection of law and technology there. From Novell, I migrated to Cisco as a in-house technology licensing lawyer. And as part of that journey was asked to support our indirect procurement organization and had the opportunity to apply my educational background in database theory to routinizing the process for negotiating indirect procurement contracts, contracts that we at Cisco defined as context, non-mission critical agreements that needed to be done, but didn't create competitive advantage for us. And so undertaking that process of routinizing those agreements, looking at the application of technology and process optimization, we were able to make some pretty significant changes to that process to introduce a lot of efficiency and cost savings. As a result of that, my general counsel at the time, Mark Chandler, approached me and said, hey, why don't you apply this same level of thinking to other problems within the legal department? And so he asked me to take on my first legal operations role. And I ended up spending roughly 15 of my 20 years at Cisco in the legal operations space. After leaving Cisco, I joined Elevate as Elevate's general counsel, and then subsequently took on the role of chief operating officer. We believe that Elevate's place in the industry is at the intersection of law and business. And so it made sense to have the legal leader also be a a business leader and contributor to that problem set as well. Thank you both. Great introduction. We're going to jump right into one of the areas in which Mike has implemented change that has had an impact. And the first project included the review, the deconstruction, and the rebuilding of your litigation process, and which resulted in measurable savings. Sounded like an amazing project. And I first wanted to kick off by asking, you know, what led you to take on this project? Yeah. So this was uh, for a large uh, manufacturing company that had just a massive portfolio of mass tort and product liability type of work. And 
traditionally basically been sort of throwing money at, at the problem, you know, having a, a traditional national coordinating council, they get a big fat check every year and, you know, make the cases go away was the traditional model. And a new uh, deputy general counsel was brought in to, to improve on and obviously fix that process. And it was excellent that they uh, recognized the need for, uh, you know, operational excellence or legal operations to address that. So that was really the, the genesis of the function or that role at that time in the organization. So we started by breaking down what was that traditional NCC role, uh, basically insourced a lot of those functions, grew the internal legal staff uh, by about four attorneys. We added a paralegal as well, and then some folks in technology on the legal ops side. And the idea was that most of the decisions about how these cases were being handled needed better attention, basically. You know, we wanted to settle what needed to be settled. We wanted to take to court what needed to go to court. And then everything else is there's this large bucket in between. And that's where we felt there was a lot of, of, of leakage and opportunity to save. And as with many uh, mass torts, there were insurance companies involved. And of course, insurance carriers are happy to pay out on claims that are valid, but don't want to pay out on those that are not. So uh, we had this massive, uh, you know, sort of machine playing into that. And we've all seen the, the plaintiff's lawyers advertising for that kind of work on TV. So you can imagine the volume, you know, we're seeing four and 5,000 new lawsuits filed every year. And as the economy would would wax and wane, then that those numbers could, you know, spike as people were seeking cash. So those plaintiff's attorneys, nice buildings don't pay for themselves. So it was a really interesting experience. But by working with folks like Elevate, we were able to deconstruct a lot of the work where you might normally have given entire law firms discovery work. And of course, a lot of this was traditional paper discovery. We actually needed boots on the ground to go out into former plants or factories and look in file rooms and take a look at documents that nobody really knew if they were relevant to the matters, but somebody had to make that determination. So, you know, it didn't make sense to just scan everything because much of it was completely irrelevant and you wouldn't invest any technology. It was just that ability to determine what might be relevant and then determine what made sense to actually add to our pretty massive library by having a dedicated national trial council, dedicated national discovery council, all these processes could be connected with a legal ops driven process. Systems, technologies uh, would keep track of all the different moving parts. And uh, of course, all the, the lovely invoices and, and billing that goes on in the background. Born out of that process was a way to standardize the way we handled deposition taking, a number of different areas where we could affect the bottom line in that regard. Mike, in your answer, you referenced a tools component, a technology component. There were some process changes that were required. And I assume that there were some cultural changes, some org adoption challenges. Is there of those three components, which did you find most challenging to address, and how did you overcome that problem? Yeah, well, certainly we introduced a number of new technology platforms around you know just managing matters and understanding how things would flow through the system. But with proper training and, and well documented procedures, I find that the technology adoption is the easier part. And as you might guess, changing the way the lawyers were approaching the work is always the interesting part. Thankfully, because this was largely driven by in-house leadership and the team that was put together, it was really the outside counsel. We had to get to turn their practice on its side and think about, well, you're now part of this large virtual network. We essentially created a large virtual firm consisting of 20 or 30 local councils, but they all had to interact with each other. They all had to work together. They all received the same kind of training on how we would approach the defenses of the different types of matters. This particular organization had multiple entities involved, multiple product lines. It was quite complicated. So we developed an awful lot of training that went into that. We had annual offsite meetings where we would gather teams together and they would get a chance to meet and interact with each other. So it was more than just people on the other end of an email. And over time, I think they started to work really well together. And then again, having that extra layer where you've taken the components out of the law firm side and created it using a law company or another type of resource. 
then they were able to keep the machine running while those that needed to actually appear in court or take a dep or do something that was locally relevant, then those actions could take place and they weren't being distracted by ongoing discovery, for example. Those observations are very interesting, Mike, and and completely consistent with my experience as well, that the organizational adoption, that cultural piece is almost always the most challenging part. And I find it a bit interesting that we tend to gravitate towards the technology solution first, right? There's this immediate leap to, if I Mm -hmm. deploy the right tool, it'll solve the problems and they'll go away. And you touched on a little bit some of the approaches you took to addressing the org adoption challenges, having consistent training, making sure expectations are well understood. Are there any other key learnings that you took away from that experience? Anything that in hindsight you wish you would have done differently to address that most difficult portion of the solution set? It took a while to establish metrics for people to understand how would we know the classic what is good look like other than reducing the outside council spend being the the obvious traditional answer. So it took a, a fair bit of time. I would say, you know, the first two out of the five or six years I was involved in this process, it took a couple of years really to figure out what is it we should be tracking and what did it mean when something was abnormal on track, off track, are we red, are we green? And if we're red, what does that really mean? Is that a spike in incoming cases? Is that a spike in deposition costs? Are we overrunning the discovery work? You know, there's a lot of different areas where that could come up. So we started to look at it in in multiple different ways because at the end of the day, we needed to explain what those differences were to all involved stakeholders, company leadership, insurance carriers, and everybody to be able to get that into sort of a dashboard form, a significant advocate for visual management. So be able to put together a dashboard that actually shows what's happening, if not real time, at least week over week, then you're able to actually understand what's happening and not necessarily predict the future, but by understanding what typically has happened with this kind of case and this jurisdiction being handled by this plaintiff's firm as related to this product, I can probably predict what's going to happen with the next one that comes in the door. And I think that really helped our in-house attorneys make decisions around what was the low-hanging fruit that we could settle and get rid of and get out of it and not expend any legal fees where it just didn't make sense to do that. And then when you saw those once a year ones that you were probably going to work up quite a bit, then you would use those resources wisely. Yeah, your reference to benchmarking and metrics resonates very strongly. I've found personally, the sooner you can get away from qualitative assessments and back them up with some data, the better your chances of creating an ongoing process that people are willing to invest in as opposed to just one person's impressions versus another. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, you've always got SOX controls and external auditors. And if just because your process is documented, they typically require a bit more than just an explanation to understand and be able to truly audit that process. And I think that this whole exercise, you know, gave the capability to do that. Any kind of numbers that you can share with us about savings or even efficiency gains that you saw, the impact you saw from implementing this project? Before the new leadership and before the overall process was put into place, the overall spend was well in excess of $100 million. And we brought that down to well below $100 million over the years that we were involved. So I would say that made a significant uh, dent in the overall spend. Was that surprising to you or the organization or was that expected? We went into it knowing that there was opportunity, but of course we didn't realize how much that opportunity would entail. And so as we started to look around more corners and look under more rocks and again, send boots out on the ground to see what we could find, we started to understand smarter use of the money and controlling the money from the in-house perspective rather than just relying on that functional outside counsel. And not that outside counsels are poor spenders of money, but they don't always understand the true corporate perspective and the broad spectrum of what it is we're dealing with when they're just being given a, a scope of work and asked to deal with this one thing. I think having that universal or more omnipresent overview made a huge difference. 
Anything else that was surprising in the process, either in the communication or how people reacted, user adoption of changes that you had implemented, anything you want to elaborate on? I think that it was still early in the department's use of anything other than a law firm to do any kind of work. So it was certainly a a good study in how an alternate service provider can add value and and be a benefit and basically become an extension of or an, an embedded member of the team. I had had some experience with that in prior roles, but certainly that fueled my interest as a legal ops leader to take that type of strategy and bring it to other organizations and other types of work. So Mike, the other change project that you and I discussed in our preparation for today involved buy-side contracts at Expedia. And of course, in our business, we know that a lot of organizations are looking at their contracting processes and looking for efficiencies. Can you elaborate on that project? Coming in initially and establishing legal operations in this new organization, we really had to get our arms around our contracts and our contracting process. So I spent the bulk, I would say about the first 18 months, you know, just understanding what the landscape looked like. There were some potential contenders due to existing technologies in-house as to what platform we might choose. Still, we conducted a complete market assessment, RFP, and eventually selected the platform that we've now implemented. And as we looked at the complexity of the work, you know, it was pretty clear the low-hanging fruit was on the the buy side, US-based English contracts where we're procuring any kind of good or service across the enterprise. And in tech, of course, there's a lot of technology contracts, software as a service, licensing and the like, along with facilities and related things. So we were able to boil that down to not a few, uh, about 18 unique workflows and different types of contracts, uh, which I would caution listeners is an awful lot to bite off as you get into a project that's just starting with fewer. But nonetheless, we endeavored over not quite a year's time, about nine months to unwind all the different types of templates, contracts, playbooks, all of the attorney knowledge and contract manager procurement knowledge that goes into all of those things and develop those workflows in conjunction with the platform vendor and our implementation partner, which happened to be Elevate. And we were able to do that and get that team up and running at a pretty reasonable period of time. They've been operational now for not quite four months and have been doing very well with the platform. It's an interesting convergence, again, of our personal experiences, because as I mentioned earlier, my initial foray into legal operations started with buy-side contracting with indirect procurement. And I can't say that that was a, a strategic decision at the time that it happened, but in speaking with other of our colleagues, I found that that's very often a, a rich area for new legal operations groups within organizations to start. It's far less disruptive. If you start on the buy side, you clearly have stronger negotiating leverage. You often have the ability to use your own templates as opposed to using third-party paper. When you're in the purchasing chair, you have the ability to set those expectations. That allows you to focus on routinization, looking for standardization, having the ability to craft institutional expectations, playbooks, negotiation guidance, things that are capable of being rolled out in a way that can produce repeatable results. And you also have the addition of freeing up internal resources that previously were doing buy-side contracting to focus on the competitively differentiating work that law departments need to support, right? The core mission-critical activities of designing, building, and selling your own products and making those available in the market as opposed to what often is a, a more mundane task of making sure that you're procuring the right goods and deploying those within the organization. I find it also very interesting that you reached a point where you ultimately decided that outsourcing that made more sense, right? And I would assume that at least part of that decision is related to the desire to free up those internal resources to go after that. Have you considered the next area of contracting that you might go after? And have you figured out a way to bite off a smaller slice than the original 18 templates that you went after in that last project? 
We have, yeah. As we reached out to the different revenue groups across the company, we were fortunate that pretty much every portion of the legal department has a business client that's it's embedded with the department. So by understanding the complexities of what they're working with, volumes, uniqueness of deals, things like that, we were able to choose our first sort of supply partner in, in our world. And we're going live with them uh, actually here before the end of the year. But we were able to you know, take something that basically had three levels of complexity, take the lowest complexity one, which was just a few templates with similar but different workflows to the way the procurement operations worked. And uh, you know, a lot of it goes into understanding who the ancillary audiences are when it comes to business review and approval, finance review and approval, and getting all of those resources, uh, one, trained up in a completely new process that probably isn't email-driven, thankfully, but uh, also to get them grouped and manageable into a tool to where you're not constantly having to remember or figure out where to send something. That was one of the greatest challenges that we saw going beyond procurement was Every procurement person knew who at the finance level would have to approve something and policies dictated at what level they needed to be to do it. Not so much on the revenue side. So it's been an interesting learning experience trying to create this matrix of people that need to be involved, but all the same, being able to loop in a legal resource, a data privacy resource, you know, whatever additional review might be required. Yeah, one unintended benefit of going through that process that I experienced in my role previously at Cisco is if you routinize that process and document it in a way that is auditable, it can substitute for a SOX control. So Mm -hmm. once you demonstrate that the approval methodologies that you're putting in place are consistent and have been evaluated for audit purposes, that can meet that control requirement. I don't think we started out with that objective when we started that project, but it did have that secondary benefit as well. And I found that to be very useful. Frankly, the finance organization found it very useful because it reduced the load of their compliance certifications. Yeah. One of my favorite meetings actually before we went live was with the head of internal audit and we communicated how we were eliminating a formal manual form that used to have to accompany every single deal as it went around for review and approval. And that was now replaced by the platform. So for him to be able to say, well, good, we don't need any new SOX controls to implement the CLM. That was you know, obviously music to everyone's ears. So Mike, I'm going to ask the same question about volumes or any kind of numbers that you can share with us about savings or even efficiency you know, gains that you saw, the impact you saw from implementing this project. Unfortunately, it's really too early to have a lot of hard numbers. So I would love to come back to that in the future. But I think we can say you know, people have, have enjoyed adopting the platform. They like sort of interfacing with it and doing everything within the platform. And if anything, it's been that cheerleader effect of one person tells another person tells another person when they see something come through an email, well, why aren't you doing this in the CLM? And did you hear about the new CLM? So we've seen a a lot of company-wide news kind of going out. Word has been spreading like wildfire. We're getting inquiries from other teams that, oh, I heard about this new platform. We want to use it. How soon can we get access to it and things like that. I think this will probably resonate with the former Cisco person as well. NDA portal. We completely reinvented our NDA portal, which was reasonably self-service and and capable before, but completely changed the way we do it with pre-signing and and click wrap capabilities. So there's zero routing of anything, even for an e-signature when you have a, a click wrap capability built in. So that's made life extraordinarily easier for anybody that needs an NDA anywhere in the business. I've recognized that it's early in your process, but one of the things that I anticipate you'll see is a reduction in cycle time. And oftentimes that's one of the key metrics that general counsel tie in on is how long does it take between the salesperson convincing a customer to engage with us or making a purchasing decision on the buy side versus either acquiring those goods or delivering those goods and recognizing the revenue, right? So cycle time reductions are an area that I found often get overlooked 
But in the grand scheme of the business delivery, enabling the business, that underappreciated value really resonates strongly with the business, the reduction in cycle time. Absolutely. And what was one of our key requirements around reporting and metrics of the new platform was turn tracking was absolutely vital to that. So now that we're starting to build out that data, I look forward to giving a six-month and full-year report of what that looked like over the time. Do you have a strategy for clause and template management? I know that as I've compared notes with other legal operations practitioners who have embarked on this sort of engagement, sometimes there's a reticence to engage because there's a recognition that the problem is so big. Convincing all of the lawyers within a department to standardize, not just on a process, but on a contextual set of language, right? What is our default negotiation position going to be? How are we going to phrase that negotiation? I mean, many lawyers are artists in a sense, right? They they have their own special way of communicating a task. So do you have any advice to give on how to overcome that problem to build the basic framework that allows you to do the secondary deliverables that you've described in our conversation today? Yeah, I think having a strong policy, a strong contracting policy that actually dictates, you know, what is the minimum contracting standard? These are the minimum acceptable terms getting leadership buy-in, obviously, for all of that. And then having that well-documented and accessible. I think I was fortunate in that the the company had already gone down that path in terms of maturity. So we had something that people were familiar with. It was accessible. It was an existing policy. And we just needed to automate it in effect. So now that we have a tool that has playbooks and clause and template languages, it's that much easier to do it. So the, the concept was already there. And as we get into more and more complex revenue contracts, I'm sure we'll run into more of the same where one of these doesn't look like the other one of these. But at the end of the day, they're sometimes bespoke, but often very much like one another and the standard can still be applied. We often talk about the fact that if there's 40 templates, it's probably not a template, right? Exactly. Mike, when you go back and think about executing both of these projects, for our listeners, were there any lessons that you learned or things you would have done differently that look back now and say, wow, you know, version 2.0 would have been different in this way? Yeah, I think take advantage of the knowledge that your partners can bring. We'll always think in-house that you know we're, we're pretty smart. We know what we want to do. Here's the scope of work. Here's an RFP. Tell us what it's going to cost to do it. It was interesting to sit in a room with different providers and actually listen to, this is how they would solve this problem. This is how the suggested resourcing model might look like. Here's the lesson we learned from another client that was facing something similar. So possibly convince your decision-maker attorneys that you know go in with what we want to accomplish, clearly we need expected outcomes and have a budget in mind for that, but allow time for education to happen you know, from your, your valued partners. There's a reason you selected them in the first place. And whether that's outside counsel or law companies, everybody needs to have a say in, in how things are going. Otherwise, you never have an opportunity to improve. The sourcing process is an education process. You can learn so much while you're evaluating those vendors. Terrific point. Exactly. And the same for a technology platform. You know, It's a little a little more straightforward, a little less creative, perhaps when you're buying a piece of tech, but you need more than just your fixed business requirements. Allow yourself to be educated. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you joining us, Steve, of course. Any last thoughts that you'd like to share around this topic with our listeners? Uh, I would say be involved in the peer networking that, that's out there between Clock and ILTA, the ACC, Link, legal operators. Or there's a ton of opportunity to learn from your peers. And very few of us are not facing problems that are dissimilar from what other people are, are facing. So the ability to share knowledge and do that networking. And you know, we, we have a great ecosystem of vendors and consultants that are more than willing to share their expertise as well. So I certainly owe a, a big chunk of my career to that networking that's gone on over the last 25 years and encourage everybody else to do the same. I appreciate both of you sharing your stories and helping us execute a solid conversation for our listeners. So thank you both. Awesome. Happy to help. Thanks, Mike. 
Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and ElevateServices.com. Thank you.